Again, great to be with you this morning again and to uh, see you in God's house this morning. Excited to share God's word with you um, as we're continuing on here in the Gospel of Matthew. I want to circle back, if we could, um, to where we have come from leading into the passage that Lucas was kind enough to read for us, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Last week, uh, we began in the, in the beginning of Matthew 11, and we spent some time examining a figure that we hadn't seen for some time in the story and the gospel account as we have been going through, and that was John the Baptist. Uh, we, he was figured prominently in the story early on, and then the last we heard of him, he was put in prison, and then we had not heard much about him, really anything about him, up until this moment at the beginning of chapter 11, we find that John the Baptist is wrestling with some doubts, wrestling with some doubts about who uh, the Messiah is, if Jesus is the Messiah, and he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus some uh, questions, and we sort of took an opportunity to dissect doubt, the anatomy of doubt, found that some of the motivations for where John's doubt came from could have been similar to maybe some of our circumstances when we might struggle with doubt. Difficult circumstances, unmet expectations, things like that. And we saw that Jesus deals with John's doubt in a very clear way. And we spent some time considering how the cross is the great antidote for doubt in our own lives, that we look into God's Word and we look upon the cross and we see God Himself giving Himself for us. And it's a great antidote for, for when doubt creeps into our, our lives. And we think about the doubt that John the Baptist was going through. There's a way, if you think about it, that it's, it's a doubt that seemingly sprung from uh, humility, not necessarily pride. He was in a very dire circumstance, right? Imprisoned, surely suffering emotionally and physically, right? Maybe uh, just a lack of understanding. He wasn't able to put the pieces together. And seemingly his doubt sprung from a place of uh, humility. But as we go further on through chapter 11 and just before the passage that we come to in chapter 25, we see after Jesus deals with John's doubt, he takes some time to sort of address a doubt that maybe is different from John's, a doubt that doesn't necessarily spring from humility, but a doubt that springs from pride. So in, in chapter 11, verses 16 to 19, we see Jesus give us a sort of a metaphor uh, comparing the generation of that time. To something. Um, and he gives a little metaphor. If we could just look at that for a moment. Matthew eleven sixteen to 19. This is what Jesus says. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, for, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her 
deeds. It's a fascinating little mini parable metaphor. Jesus compares this generation to, to children sitting in the marketplace. And um, they're not interested in truth, right? They're not, they're just sort of, it seems like looking that they just want to mess with people, right? That's what it seems like. They're just wanting to rag on some folks. They're out there and then they, they, they play their flute and they go, hey, you didn't dance. And they go, oh, we sang a sad song. Hey, you didn't mourn. Like they're making up the rules of the game as they go. And the point of, of the game is not to get to some measure of truth. It's just so that they win. And Jesus compares that generation at that time when he thinks about the unbelief that exists, the lack of repentance that exists, and he says, this is a doubt that's not coming from humility. This is a doubt that's coming from where? That's coming from pride. A lack of repentance that comes from pride. Jesus goes on in verses 20 to 24. Jesus very strongly talks about some of the cities in which he was doing great miracles and acknowledging the lack of repentance and faith, the relative lack of repentance and faith that was existing in these cities that he was doing these great miracles. And really, the theme is the same here again, that there is a doubt, there is a lack of repentance, there's a lack of faith, and it's not springing from humility, but it's springing from what? from pride from from pride then after that we come to the passage where we are this morning chapter 11 verse 25 where Jesus in front of the crowds that are there and in front of his disciples that he that are there that he has been talking to all this time through ch- uh, chapter 11 he extemporaneously proclaims a, a thanksgiving unto the father but it's for the Father, but it's also for the people there that are listening so that they would hear. And really, the theme at the beginning of this Thanksgiving is the same that I have just said. It's this idea that pride, pride is the greatest obstacle to a saving relationship with God. That pride cannot be the ruling principle in your life. Pride cannot be the authority over all your actions. Pride cannot be the voice telling you what to do. And, and if we look at the passage that Lucas was so kind to read, this sort of thanksgiving that Jesus gives, we see that the focus is not necessarily on us, on our pride or our humility, but the focus is actually upon who? Upon God. Upon a God who shows what? His absolute sovereignty over creation, over all creatures, especially human beings. And we see this hiding of the gospel from some and mercifully revealing it to others. 
And it says in verse 26, For such was your gracious will. And again, God is really the focus of what Jesus is saying here. But I can't help to think about why Jesus is, he's praying this to the Father, but why, why is Jesus saying this in front of the people, the crowd, and the disciples that are there at the time? It says, at that time, Jesus declared. And I think Jesus praises God out loud so that they and we might apply the same sort of praise. And the application is, is the same as I've stated so far, that pride, again, is the greatest obstacle to a saving relationship with God. And we must acknowledge that there is deep, unfathomable mystery here. There is. Why, why would the gospel be hidden from anyone, no matter how prideful they are? I, I don't know. When you start thinking about God's sovereign election, his choosing, it is a deep, unfathomable, unfathomable mystery to me. But there are some things that I look at. I, I look and I believe God's word that he's given us. And I know myself. Before I think of anyone else, I, I know myself. And I know that I was not so good. I was not so good that God should save me. I was not so good that God would be gracious to me. I was not so good that God would open my heart. Why, why choose me from this rubble of humanity? Why choose me? And I know, if I think about it, that no one, no one is worthy. No one is worthy of salvation. So therefore, right, God is gracious, as it says in verse 26, in doing what? In saving some, in revealing himself in revealing his son to those who what? Come to him for rest. Who come to him how? In humility. There's mystery here. There is. Why do some people come to Christ and others don't? If you think about it as, as a two-sided coin, right? One side of the coin is God's sovereignty. You look at Scripture, you cannot run from it. One side of the coin is God's sovereignty. We see in Scripture that God says, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But the other side of that same coin is human responsibility. Humility opens the door to the kingdom and pride keeps it closed. And in verse 25 of chapter 11, this, 
this door slamming sin of pride, if you will, is addressed by Jesus. If you look in verse 25, what does Jesus talk about? He talks about the wise and the understanding versus who? The little children. The wise and the understanding versus the little children. The wise and the understanding, the gospel is hidden from them while it is revealed to the little children. Now, there's a contrast here being made, but it's important that we understand what the contrast is. The contrast is not between the smart and the dumb. The contrast is not between the adults and the kids. What's the contrast? It's between those who are self-sufficient and think of themselves as wise and those who are dependent and long to be taught. That's the difference. That is the contrast. And this is a contrast that you see throughout the scriptures. It's a contrast that you see in the Gospels between all of the religious elites and who? The 12 ordinary men. We spent some time uh, in the last small group just digging through the life of the apostles. And they were ordinary men who did extraordinary things through, through Christ. But this contrast, we see this contrast that Jesus is talking about throughout the scriptures. It's this contrast between the religious elite and these 12 ordinary men, between the, the scribes that we've heard about, so scripturally savvy, right, could remember all of it. The contrast between them and who? These fish, fishermen. Seemingly gullible f fishermen. It's the difference between, if you look in Luke chapter 18, it's the difference between the Pharisee who lifts his eyes to heaven and says what? Oh, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And the tax collector who pounds his chest can't even lift his eyes to heaven and says what? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the difference between Caiaphas, the high priest, who we'll see later on in Matthew chapter 26, who essentially will point at Jesus and demand what? Are you the Son of God? And the Roman centurion that we see in Matthew chapter 27, who says what? Who looks upon the cross and says what? Truly, this was the Son of God. It's the difference between the rich young ruler who comes before Jesus and walks away distraught, thinking about getting rid of the gold that exists in his pockets. He walks away sad. It's the difference between him and little Zacchaeus who does what? Climbs up the tree just to see Jesus. And after he came down, 
opened his heart to Jesus. And then what does he do with his pockets? He gives to the poor. It's the difference between the proud in heart and the poor in spirit. It's the difference between conceited self-reliance and utter dependence on God through Christ. So if you've ever come across Jesus and thought, well, you know, Jesus is... uh, He's something. I'll, I'll, I'll give him that. <laughs> let, me, let, me hear, let me give you some advice. Let me give you a suggestion. Turn that lens with which you're looking at Jesus and put that back on yourself and ask, are you little enough in your own eyes to see him for who he is? God's, God's not looking for, for big shots. He's not interested in, in those that think they are somebody in this world. He's interested in the nobodies. <laughs> are you enough of a nobody for him to be interested in you? that is before him, do you humbly confess your unworthiness, your emptiness, your helplessness? Do you acknowledge that in your own goodness you are not good enough for God? Or, or, or has your education puffed you up as it talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Has your wealth or your means puffed you up? Has your power or position, status, puffed you up a bit? Has your talent puffed you up? Has your knowledge puffed you up? But if we look in Scripture, there's a clear theme. In Scripture, it says what? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In Scripture, it says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. First on the list, what? Haughty eyes, prideful eyes. Scripture says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Do you long to be a child of the Heavenly Father? What does that really look like? It's becoming childlike in faith. In trust, independence, you become like like a newborn. You must become 
for lack of a better word, maybe the best word, born again. <laughs> so the first idea here from this passage is that pride is this, the greatest obstacle to a saving relationship with God. That's the first point. The second is this. That if you don't know the Son, you don't know God. That's the second point. And this comes from verse 27, where Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So in verses 25 and 26, Jesus says that the only way into the kingdom is through humility. And in verse 27, and I, I hope you caught verse 27, Jesus perhaps gives the four most seemingly arrogant claims in the history of humanity. What does he say in 27? He claims this. Number one, that he has authority over all things. What do you think all things means? All things, right? There's no, nothing fancy there. No, tr no trick question. You guys were like, oh, man, what's he asking, right? Yeah, it means all things. I take it to mean what? Everything. All power, all wisdom, and as he will say at the end of this gospel, all authority and heaven in heaven and on earth. So that's, that's the first claim. The second is this, that he alone as God's son really knows God as father, knows as in actually knows, a fullness of knowledge, knows God as father. That's the second thing. The third thing he says is that we can't know God except through knowing the Son. And fourth, we can't know God unless he chooses to reveal him to us. Four claims. Hopefully you're tracking. Those are some lofty claims. For someone who later on in this passage is going to call himself what? Lowly in heart. <laughs> those, are, those are some lofty claims. Pull these claims into our context today. Are these not offensive? Are, aren't these offensive claims? In one verse, Jesus manages to offend the whole world. He claims he has all authority, that he is from God and like God and has lordship over heaven and earth. All of it. That's a lot. You know? You're thinking, you know, yeah, okay. Listen, claim to be a carpenter, but not the creator. Yeah, okay, you know, wise teacher, sure, but 
wisdom, capital W, embodied? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, maybe lowly of heart, but equal with the Father? It's offensive. It's offensive. Then there's Jesus' claim that he is the Son of God. Now you go into other faith systems, other religious systems, totally would be offended, utterly offended, utterly offended. Then there's the claim that knowledge of God comes only through knowledge of him. That there is a pathway to knowing God and it go, comes through Christ. What does this strike at? The whole, the, the whole multifaceted approach of many faiths. The whole idea of, you know, one God, one God but many, many paths. And the whole postmodernist idea that, well, you know, we can't really know. We can't really know. Totally is offensive to that. And then, and then, and then, he even claims that we can't know God unless Jesus chooses to reveal him to us. That, if not for the rest of it, that's the last, you know, stab wound, the fatal, the fatal stab wound at the heart of self-autonomy. Isn't it all up to me? Isn't all of it in my hands? Don't, don't I have the control over everything? Yeah, all, all these claims. I mean, if we, if we really stop and we, th we pause and we think about these, all these claims are very offensive and they are utterly arrogant unless they are true. Unless they are true. What is it then that has convinced millions of people from different countries different cultures, different centuries that these claims are true. And for me, the trust doesn't come necessarily in the claims themselves because these claims, they're not just dangling in midair. For me, it comes when I see that the claims fit the character. The claims fit the character. Jesus says that he is humble. I believe him. I believe him because I've watched him in Matthew's gospel, and I hope you have too. I've watched his birth. I've watched his temptation. I've watched him reach out to the lowly, the, preach the good news to the poor, heal the suffering, welcome the outcasts, have compassion on sinners. I've seen him 
walk the road to Calvary, the crown of thorns upon his brow, the whip upon his back, the nails through his skin, the cry of agony, and his head dropped down in death. The character fits the claims. And people can be quite sincere about their beliefs, right? I'm sure you've seen that. People can be quite sincere about what they believe. But God was just as sincere when he sent his one and only son to live and teach and heal and suffer and die. And in return for that, some will mock, mock God in return for that. Assuming that, well, you know, I can believe whatever I want to think about God and Jesus. I can formulate my own understanding about it. There's a quote that's attributed to Martin Luther, the great reformer, as he was teaching some divinity students in, under his tutelage. It was basically, you know, if you want to see who or what or how God is, hold on to Jesus. He's the only God we've got. In Jesus, we have the knowledge of the glory of God. And if you don't know the Son, you don't know God. That's the second point. There's one more point, finally. The third point. And that is that if you have the sun, you have rest. If you have the sun, you have rest. And here we see it in, in verses 28 to 30, Jesus' famous invitation. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So b before we actually get to the third point here of, of finding rest in Jesus, there's, there's one thing that kind of leaps off of the page at me in this maybe the world's most famous invitation and that is this the fact that Jesus chooses us does not negate our choice Right after Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him, what did we just hear Jesus say? Come to me. Take my yoke. Jesus chooses, but we come. Kind of like, which is it, Jesus? I can make up your mind here. Do you choose or do we come? He chooses and we come. 
He chooses and we come. Uh, the better word for it is antinomy. Antinomy. An antinomy is a appearance of a contradiction. It's an apparent incompatibility between true, seemingly apparent and reasonable truths. You can see an example of this in, in, in physics. I don't know if you've got any physicists in here, right? In physics, there was a Dutch physicist named Christian Huygens. He first discovered that light consisted of waves. That light behaved as, as a wave. Then you have Isaac Newton who discovers and understood that light exists actually as particles. Later on, scientists come along like Einstein, Max Planck, and they, they discovered wave-particle duality. This is the theory that light consists of both waves and particles, that it is both at the same time. How can it be both? <laughs> See, in, in our tiny, very tidy little minds, we don't know, <laughs> but we know that it is. We can't truly wrap our brains around how light can be both waves and particles, but neither can we deny it. It's incomprehensible, but undeniable. So too is Jesus' sovereign choice and our choice to come to him. He chooses, we come. Now you can try to take it and, and, and deny deny this based on your own experience, right? You could say to yourself, well, you know, I chose Christ. I came to I came to faith first. If we do that, it's it 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 sort of betrays the same sort of immaturity as a first year physics student denying the the dual nature of light. <laughs> he chooses and we come. But this little detour aside, right? We come to the actual point here was which is which is what he who has Son, has the Son, has rest. As humans, we have lots of longings. We have lots of longings. There's one thing every human being longs for. It is rest. It is rest. We all long to rest. To rest in peace, not only after we die, but also what? While we are alive. <laughs> Who doesn't want the inward and outward peace that comes with being in right relationship in all of our relationships? Have you 
Have you ever been in a, in a, in a wrong relationship? Have you ever been in a relationship where it was not quite right? That's the least restful state of being. <laughs> but a right relationship brings rest. Jesus claims that the ultimate rest the longing of every human heart for the most right of all relationships comes through being in relationship with Him. It's quite a claim. He's saying, you want rest? I, I make rest. I'm the rest maker. Right? I'm the one that you have to embrace. And what I love about Jesus' invitation here, I mean, I mean, you all, I'm sure, are familiar with this invitation. What I love about this invitation is who he, he invites and what he invites them to. Who he invites and what he invites them to. Jesus doesn't invite those who, who have found their own self-worth. He doesn't invi invite the, the self-satisfied. He doesn't invite the, the self-righteous. He, he doesn't invite those who are living, uh, that, in that sense, a life of ease. Who does he invite? All who labor and are heavy laden. I love who Jesus invites, but I also, invites, I also love who, what he invites them to. If you look in verse 28, or after verse 28, when he says, and I will give you rest, what's the expectation maybe in our mind of what he is going to say next? Someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to give you rest. What do you think they're going to say next? Maybe something about a nice vacation? Somewhere, you know, nice? I'm going to give you rest. Maybe, maybe a new recliner, yeah, you know, a new sofa, something like that. We give you rest, maybe a nice relaxing massage, you know. Instead, what do we find in verse 29 after Jesus says, I will give you rest? Take my yoke upon you. Oh, were you not expecting? You weren't expecting that, huh? <laughs> Take my yoke upon you. What is, what is a yoke? Well, we'll get into it, but it is an instrument for what? Work. This sounds all kinds of backwards. A yoke, it's a wooden frame that's placed upon the shoulders, typically of animals, in order to make the load or the burden easier to, to carry. It's designed to distribute the weight in equal proportions to the body, to the equal sides of the body. Sounds, uh, sounds a bit backwards, doesn't it? I will give you rest. Well, what yoke is comfortable? What burden is light? What do we make of this? Well, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's an upside-down kingdom. It's a topsy-turvy kingdom. It's an up, up is down and down is up kingdom. It's an unexpected kingdom. And here's what we, what we can take here. 
Jesus doesn't promise escape from reality, but he promises the right equipment to deal with it. He doesn't promise an escape from reality, but the right equipment to deal with it. He promises a yoke. What is his yoke? Take my yoke upon you. Well, lots of ways you can look at this. I think it looks it, it must have something to do with his teachings because what does he say after take my yoke? He says what? And learn learn from me. So I think you have to think about other times when Jesus talked about heavy burdens. When when has Jesus talked about being burdened and heavy burdens? See, this is in contrast to the heavy yoke of who? The scribes and the Pharisees. In, in, in Matthew 23, he's going to call them heavy burdens that, that, that they are putting on the people. That the religious leaders of the time have put upon the people's shoulders. All this extra that they added on to the scriptures to try and create and manufacture a righteousness was weighing the people down. But what Jesus has called us to, the burden that he has called us to, to is there is a lightness to it because of what? Who has given it to us? And how he has given it to us, graciously given it to us. From the mouth of who? The one who dies for us. The one who bore our ultimate burdens upon the cross. The one who carried them himself. So if you take the, the, the burden of the Pharisees, which is just religiosity, just checking the boxes, just self-righteousness, and you look at what Jesus calls us to, to it is not a burden like, like that. But there is something to carry. There is something to carry. What is that? Well, let's not, let's not push the Sermon of the Mount off of our back, right? Let's not, let's not push the, the parables of Christ off of our backs. Let's not push the Great Commission off of our backs. See, in those teachings comes rest. It brings rest. Rest comes from working. Rest comes from laboring. Rest comes from obedience. Rest comes from seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Rest comes from God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, it's an upside-down kingdom. It's an unexpected kingdom. Notice what Jesus didn't say, right? He didn't say, I will give you rest. Take my chair. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I will give you rest. Take my Tempur-Pedic mattress. He didn't say that. He didn't say it. Why? That's equipment for what? For sitting and for sleeping. 
And that's not, that's not it. He said, take my yoke. As my child, as I have borne the weight of your sin, the weight of your shame, the weight of your guilt, as my child, take my yoke. You'll be working. You'll be walking. You'll be moving forward. You'll be carrying what I tell you to carry, even your own cross. Life might be uncomfortable, hard, trying. But here, here's, here's that irony coming in again. Walk my way and you will find rest. You will find rest. You'll find the refreshment that comes with forgiveness. The renewal that comes with living with a purpose. And the rest that comes from working for Christ. As we come to close this morning, again, what I love about this invitation is who he invites and what he invites them and us, and us, too. Are you, are you tired? Are you tired for working for whoever and whatever? Whatever passions and desires and longings that, that, you, that you've been working for and working under, are you tired? Jesus says, come work for me. <laughs> come work for me. And I love, I love that Jesus' invitation provides him an easy way to prove him wrong. <laughs> Take him up on it. Take him up on it. Put his yoke over your shoulders and give it a try. See if learning from him, walking forward with him at the lead, or, or a yoke was also used for two animals at times. So at times a, a more feeble and weaker ox would be paired up with a stronger ox and the yoke would come across both of them. As we join with Jesus, we walk forward with him at the, at the lead, or maybe we can even think of him as, as at our side, helping us to carry the weight, trusting him as an infant trusts a parent for everything. There is a rest that comes with that. Trust in him. See if he brings that that peace, that shalom of right relationship and that satisfaction of salvation. Take him up on that. Think about the heaviness of all that other junk that we carry on our backs. All the immorality, has that brought you rest? Has the, has the pursuit of that, that perfect companion, has that, has that brought you rest?
has your education all the schooling all the all the studying all the degrees all the, everything has that brought you rest has, has climbing the corporate ladder and and getting the job and then the next job and then the next job has, has that brought you rest Have any of the material things that you have gotten, has that brought you rest? Has the house bought you rest? Has the car brought you rest? Has fill in the blank brought you rest? And, and in following Christ, there, it, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do, right? There is a yoke. There's a burden. There are things to carry. There will be persecutions. There will be trials. There will be testings. But he is with you. He is with you. How do you know he is with you? L look upon him upon the cross in your place. What more with you is there than that? In your place. In your place. He's with you. Jesus is right. He brings the rest every human being longs for. The rest that comes only by being in right relationship. So get rid of the pride. Come to the sun. Find that rest that you've been longing for, both now and in the life to come. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together this morning.